Here's to the finest crew in Starfleet. Engage. Welcome to the Greatest Generation, Deep Space Nine, a Star Trek podcast by a couple of guys who are a little bit embarrassed, but also tremendously proud to have served up well over 10 million downloads of their Star Trek podcast. I'm Ben Harrison. I'm Adam Pranica. 10 million. We started at the bottom and now we're here. We're in the eight figure club. Yeah, that's a pretty big club, right? It's a big club. I mean, I mean, it's not that big. <laughs> not that many people have 10 million downloads. We can still walk the streets of a comedy festival, a a group of podcasters or anywhere really and be unrecognized. So, yeah. I guess we're not that big. We have a delightful amount of anonymity. <laughs> and yet the other day I tweeted a picture of a ridiculous car I walked by and said and and put a caption thinking about buying a car and i was really worried that people thought i was serious <laughs> let them never believe that 10 million listeners equals success <laughs> car success anyway not purple sports car success you famously um, <laughs> hate cars i'm surprised that you walked by a car and regarded it in any way it was on my mind because uh, we had to uh uh, we, we've had a loner car here in L.A. for the first year of living here, and we it was just not working for us. So mm-hmm. we, uh, we had to bite the bullet and, and lease something that we could look at ourselves in the mirror <laughs> uh, uh, before driving. <laughs> uh-huh. And, uh, and so I was, uh, I was like, I was really like dipped in automotive research when, when, a, I saw when this a thing. When a share lift becomes luxurious feeling, you know it's, <laughs> you know it's time. Yeah, this will this episode will come out well after our 10 million download day, but uh, I just want to say thank you so much to the friends of DeSoto who have made that happen, and uh, everybody who's shared the show with a friend. I mean, it's it's really it, it's really arresting to see that number sitting there on the on the statistics page, and getting to do that with you, Adam, has been super duper fun. I mean, it's it's a highlight of my week every week to to sit down and do this with you. So uh, the fact that it translates at all is stunning and uh, and uh, very touching. Thanks, man. I am in total agreement with you. I think the, the most surprising part is like being disabused of the idea that our friendship is so unique that that <laughs> no one else would appreciate it. Like it's 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 kind of encouraging that. I don't know. I don't know how to, how to articulate it, but I think my point is that you know, like when we started, we thought no it's one encouraging would... that we're not the only two people that think this way. Yeah, I thought that no one would get us, and it turns yeah. out that a lot of people do. And it, I think, it makes me feel a little less alone in this life to to think that my weird idiosyncrasies and how they align with yours somehow equal a source of comfort for a lot of people, and that's cool. Yeah, that's super cool. Uh, well. To, to everybody out there listening to this, thank you very much. You told me that we have some messages in the inbox. Yeah, the I mean, physical inbox. It's nice to read encouragement from our viewers. It's cool to have reached the 10 million download plateau. But the best thing, Ben, yeah, is uh, opening up our presents 
and uh, I just went to our PO box and and retrieved some and retrieved some from uh, from the box. So I'm gonna open them. Rip that shit open. Captain, I'm sorry to disturb you. I'm receiving a code 47. Verify. It is code 47, sir. Start lead emergency frequency. Captain's eyes only. Oh Ben, our first box is from the Gooch. The Gooch. We've got a lot of great friends at DeSoto. Yeah. None of them with better names than the Gooch, I would argue. Uh, I mean, maybe Plevim, but <laughs> but tough, tough. Uh, you know, that's that's rarefied air up there that those guys are planning. The contents of this package are wrapped in a blue gel. I believe it's a CTB <laughs> minus three. Really? <laughs> yeah. So in uh, in filmmaking. Uh, the temperature of light is like a very critical thing. Sunlight is very blue, and uh, and inter- interior lights are very orange. Our eyes correct for them, but cameras cannot. So sometimes, if you have light sources of different color temperatures, you put a gel up, and uh, and they're literally color temperature blue and color temperature orange uh, to to correct for differences in in uh, color temperature. So it sounds sounds like uh, the Gooch. Yeah, maybe the Gooch did, is in the biz. Did you uh, did you a favor? Made uh, made this stuff look like it's out in the daylight. You know what's great about the Gooch is that the Gooch sent us matching pizza cutters. These Whoa. are these are Star Trek USS Enterprise pizza cutters. They are beautiful cool. and heavy duty, and there's one for each of us. Hey, that's tremendous. There's a letter inside. To Ben and Adam, we are your faithful and ever-ready dishwashers, galley cooks, stewards, and chefs of Starfleet. <laughs> we will stir mashed potatoes, even if the crew needs to vaporize the pot to prove a point. Sure. We make sure the Dustbuster Club has a full belly when they set off to explore a new planet, and just maybe <laughs> one of us is a time traveler from the future here to save Starfleet. Because of our appreciation of the podcast you have created... Documenting the adventures and lives of the crews we serve, we want to give you a gift. Please accept these pizza cutters shaped like our favorite flagship of the great United Federation of Planets. Hell yeah. Live long and prosper. Love the 282 members of the greatest exo cooks on Facebook. (laughs) These members include Ira the Gooch, Brittany, Amanda, Lenny, Michael, Nicole, Vera, Dan, Ashley, Mary, Karen, Brendan, and Sarah. Uh, and, uh, wow, really sweet. It even includes a uh, a pizza recipe here. The Gooch's <laughs> cool. Whole Wheat Porch Beer Pizza Crust. Whoa. Yeah. I really like making pizza, so I'm uh, very excited to be receiving my my cutter. What, uh, what edition of The Entrepreneur is it? Uh, it looks like Original Series Entrepreneur. No bloody A, B, C, or D. Great. Fun. Yeah. Yeah. That's the that's the one you want because it's got the roundest uh, saucer <laughs> section. Yeah, you try diving into a a deep dish crust with the Enterprise D pizza cutter. That's dangerous. Yeah, you're probably gonna get some fingers and some toppings trying that. <laughs> wow, thank you, uh, thank you, Facebook group. What's it called again? The greatest exo cooks. The greatest exo cooks. Yeah. So they can uh, they can self replicate the, all the different uh, kitchen utensils they need. That is an ideal circumstance for any cook. Yeah. Ben, our second box comes from 
Adam Connor. Whoa! <laughs> I'm I saying love that guy. I'm saying his full name because he's a public figure. He's uh, <laughs> he's one of our best friends at DeSoto from Washington D.C. I mean, he should be ashamed of his association with our show, but I don't think he is. Adam Connor has sent us action figures. Yeah. These are. These are the uh, Playmates action figures that we've come to know and love. We have a Rom Yarlin. <laughs> cool. We have a LaForge as the Tarkinen alien. Uh, the the glow-in-the-dark alien. Fun. Which looks like a pretty rare figure. <laughs> and we have a Guinan. I love it. Yes. Also, we have a make-your-own starship Star Trek The Next Generation book. Oh, it's it's one of those uh you pop the paper pieces out of the page and then you uh and then you fold the pieces over and glue the paper <laughs> together and then you make oh. yourself uh the entrepreneur. Little paper gra- craft joint. Ben, there um, is a letter. Yeah? And which it, I, I'm curious about the Guinan before you get to the letter. What uh what is uh what does she look like? Uh she is wearing the uh the reddish orange dress with the reddish orange lid this is amazing because i have two of those in box here in front of me that uh, a, a friend of desoto gave to us after one of our live shows recently Jeez, we are rich <laughs> we, with guinans now we might be cornering the market on guinans this might be another there there might be a guinan bubble brewing <laughs> yeah guinan con gas <laughs> Like bubbly water? Uh huh. That's how I mean that. We've got a, a letter in an envelope on Adam's very own personalized stationery, which what a class act! I mean, it's, it's it's embossed, Ben. You can feel it. Raised lettering, pale nimbus, white, impressive. If anyone's gonna do it, it's gonna be our buddy Adam in DC. <laughs> letter goes like this: Adam and Ben, we bought these a while ago. Brotiking. <laughs> and and in, in parentheses it says when bros go antiquing. <laughs> At a creepy craft place coming back from the Max Funcon East. <laughs> but then my house caught on fire and they were in storage forever. But enjoy these gifts because everyone needs a guy in an action figure. Love Adam, Brad, and Sam. Yeah, Brad and Sam getting in on this action. Our, our other two great, great friends from DC. His house caught on fire? I feel like he would have told us if his house caught on fire. What does he mean? Adam and I have hung out in person multiple times. Never came up. <laughs> so I guess we aren't, like, that close. <laughs> I mean, all I can think is that probably Brad burned down Adam's house to cover up some kind of Pizzagate evidence. <laughs> wow. Well, uh, thanks, guys. Uh, thanks, Adam, Brad, and Sam for, yeah, those, uh, for brightening our day. Those are some of the best buds. Yeah. Some of the best friends of DeSoto right there. It's not a competition, Adam. I don't know. I mean, I might be willing to break a pool cue and... Set one in the middle of the room just to see. Just to see. We're holding auditions. Is that the last of the mailbag? I'm down at the bottom of Santa's sack. Okay. Well, Adam, we have a pretty important episode of DS9 to cover today. Do you want to get into it? Yeah, I really do. It's the second of a two-parter, a mid-season two-parter, Ben. It's uh, Deep Space Nine Season 3, Episode 12. 
past tense part two. Do you realize how incredible this is? No, of course you don't. Our boy uh, Biddle is harassing Bernardo, <laughs> social worker. We kind of come back in in media race right where right where we left off. Commander Riker had uh, ordered Mister Worf to fire, and now now we're in the DMV, and uh, and yeah, it looks like uh, it looks like. These people are in some pretty serious danger because the ghosts, is that is that what they call themselves? Yeah. It's it's strange that they sell style as ghosts, but uh they do. <laughs> and uh, the ghosts have uh, have taken over this this DMV processing area and Cisco kind of uh, pokes his nose into the middle of it and starts advocating for a you know, work smarter not harder kind of ethic around here. We need them alive. They're the only thing we have to bargain with. Make the hostages work for you, not against you. Right, yeah. These guys are some great leverage, but if you start killing them, they're not going to be. And Biddle is like, I knew that. Duh. (laughs) It's not like I didn't know that. Just making sure. This is one of many scenes where Cisco as Bell establishes himself as the power behind the power, right? Right. Because he never totally confronts Biddle directly, he's always like conversationally aikidoing him a little bit. He gets a little Socratic with Biddle, and uh, and yeah, and there's also like some give and take here, right? Because like um, the older cranky card played by Dick Miller, like comes out with a pistol at some point. I guess he's been like hiding in one of the cubicles, and you know this is like where Vin <laughs> kills Biddle if Cisco isn't there, right? Finn had to make a move, man. <laughs> you made that exact same joke in the last episode. <laughs> it's because Finn's always making moves. Yeah. For him, the action is the juice. For him, the juice is the juice. <laughs> yeah. The thing yeah, about- he's always calling people boy instead of sport. <laughs> this whole Bernardo Vin thing is really like, they have the same job, but they are most definitely made to- emote opposite sides of the same coin right like there is never a point when bernardo isn't aching to get home to his family and will say or do anything to do it vin though he doesn't say it clearly doesn't have a family clearly lives alone and has an axe to grind yeah he's he's angry at the world and is using his job to take it out on people with less advantages than him and I, I think he's a great villain in that respect. You all a bunch of losers. Cisco gets the drop on Vin and gets that pistol away from him. And they've been kind of discussing like what they should do, like using these hostages leverage and then like trying to get get things for the hostages. And Cisco at some point was like, Hey, like let's put all those benches up against the windows so that we don't get shot by snipers. And uh, they're like, Yeah, good idea. And like a lot of shit goes on before they actually get around to doing that. Yeah. I was like, isn't that, like, don't, like, maybe make the priority not getting shot by a sniper. Like, there's not a lot of examples of people taking snipers casually and coming out okay on the other side. The tension they set up is fairly acute because they are being targeted by a couple of different factions in the episode. It's not only the law enforcement community who has it in for them, but it's all of these ghosts that inhabit both the building and the section of town that they're in. Like, right, they're, the, they're, they're targets for all sides. 
There's there's a riot in the streets outside this room, and this room is sort of a microcosm for what's going on out there because there's plenty of decent people in the sanctuary zone who who don't resort to abusing others to you know to survive, but ghosts seem to be sort of avowed criminals in some way. Like Biddle doesn't seem to care about other people in the same way that, for example, Webb does. We're really lucky that the ratio of bad to good is what it is in the processing station because like outside of Biddle and a few anonymous street toughs, everyone yeah. is fairly chaotic good. And it starts with the web guy. Right. I thought it was interesting that it wound up being called the Bell Riots, given how like Webb is like the public face of it in every instance. Yeah. Uh, like it's, it doesn't seem like how the media works, but you know, where else Michael Webb was erased? It was from the, uh, previously on Star Trek Deep Space Nine reel. <laughs> I watched that fairly closely cause I always love those, those pre-rolls that they do. And yeah. they, they show a scene between Webb and Cisco and Bashir where all you hear is Webb's dialogue. I watched that previously on and felt that it heavily implied that Webb was, because they don't say his name, and you do get one brief glimpse of him, uh-huh. and, and it's like right before Cisco says, that man that was just killed back there is Gabriel Bell, and they don't show the guy that Gabriel, you know, they don't show the Gabriel Bell guy. They show Webb right before <laughs> that, so it kind of implies that Webb died, and yeah. like if, if this was the first episode of this arc that you watched, you would be profoundly confused when Webb shows up. Most of us agreed to live here because they promised us jobs. I don't know about you, but I haven't been on any job interviews lately. That man who just got killed trying to help us, that man was Gabriel Bell. I mean, for a variety of reasons, we recommend you turn off this show. But if this is the first you're hearing the show or watching DS9, you really need to turn back now. Yeah, I, I would say go back to episode one, start there, or don't. You know, probably best for you if you don't. <laughs> Biddle also keeps calling everybody boy. He call, and, and specifically everybody of color. Yeah. We talked about this on the last episode, but like Bernardo starts to get it too. And uh, not comfortable with that. <laughs> <laughs> I suppose it's realistic, right? Like a dead-end kid that doesn't care about anybody also being racist is realistic but the it doesn't seem like the episode is aware of how racist it is you know i don't know i might take the other side of that argument and saying like what is the shortest path between not knowing a character and knowing a character is potentially a bad person like if you give them a slur to say that's yeah. that's pretty efficient but the thing is in saying that i don't ever really hate biddle even though he killed bell on screen, like stabbed right. him in the back. Why is right. that? They still, they still like treat him as like a, as like a potentially redeemable character in this episode. Because every every time he has an opportunity to kill somebody in in part two, he's like, you know, they're able to persuade him not to. There are depictions of vengeful yokels in film and TV, in time immemorial, you know? Like, uh-huh. like there's a there's a long list of those portrayals. Their kids are legendary at banjo. And yet in most of those portrayals, like, the threat seems so real. Mm-hmm. 
Why aren't we scared of Biddle? I think they've kind of painted themselves into a corner in a weird way, because in that first episode, the whole thing is about how the hostages don't die, the guards don't die. Yeah. And it's all attributed to Gabriel Bell, like, making sure that this was actually genuinely a peaceful protest and not just a terrorist situation or or a riot that got out of control. For an episode with so many shotguns and so many people getting shot later, like, the, the one time you see... Biddle kill someone in in the first half it's like in the dark and i think that's got to be a part of it right yeah Chekhov would be disgusted (laughs) back on the defiant they've narrowed the problem down to 10 different timeline possibilities but the problem is there's only a finite amount of chroniton particles to use for time travel i guess whenever they beam somebody through the hull of the ship it must alter or use up the chroniton particles in the hull? Guess so. But uh, I really love the idea that even in a universe without the Federation at all, they are still prescribing to the rule that O'Brien... I am Chief Miles Edward O'Brien. This is fucking spectacular. And Kira are the only ones qualified to go on this mission. I really loved that they had to just kind of pick some some costume that seemed reasonably in the middle of like everything from the 50s through like the fit like the 1950s through the 2050s yeah i mean if you if you could choose something out of your closet right now that would work in 20 year increments going into the past i mean do you have that in your closet i do what what's your choice i bet you have a choice tuxedo <laughs> it really hasn't changed that much in over a hundred years. Like the chances that it's a big difference between now and 2050 are slim. I might get a couple of second looks if I'm walking around in the middle of the day wearing evening wear, but it's a slam dunk in terms of looking like basically the same as it would in any given time period. God, I am just sitting back in the joy of, you know, like if, <laughs> when you ask a friend a question and you expect like a short throwaway answer like it is so clear that you've thought so much about this (laughs) if i ever time travel it's tuxedo all the way god that's great that's the only choice that's why they call me the tuxedo time traveler kira chooses a breathe right strip as a part of her (laughs) ensemble and it fits it fits any time period i would say she's uh she's kind of gone with the the blackhead strip to Spock's uh, headband in Star Trek Four, like, yeah. what do you do to obscure the fact that you're an alien if you can't explain it away as tattoos the way Dax does? Golden cotton, the cut. Golden cotton. So the Defiant stuff is just entirely Odo, O'Brien, and Kira, and the O'Brien and Kira stuff sort of turns into just a bit that runs through the episode like they yeah. it's it's like almost exactly what you asked for last episode which is just them like popping into a time period and being like whoa they're smoking some pretty strong reefer in that hippie van oh time to get beamed up again it's a little camp but i do really love the warner brothers backlot same <laughs> like same brownstone set up, right. shot at different angles, production aesthetic to it. This time we put a Studebaker on the street. This time we put a lava lamp in the window. I love that. Yeah, it's it's very fun. I mean, it does make Chief look like an asshole. It's like, <laughs> well, the only thing to do is process of elimination. 
I mean, we talked about this again in the first half of this two-parter as well. Like the tone is worth bringing up. O'Brien has talked about a diminishing number of tries he gets at this. Yeah. But you never feel like like death is on the line at any point. Well, you never go up against an O'Brien when death is on the line. Yeah, so 1930, failed attempt. Did you think this was the same? I mean, it must be, right? The same playset that they're doing all the future future for us, past for Star Trek stuff? Yeah, no question. I think I think it's got to be. But it, I thought it was interesting that, like, they're beaming down, but not in the same exact spot that, you know, like, if they, they built that, like, subway entrance thing, you know? You're so <laughs> right. It should have been the subway every time. But it, the thing about the subway is, is that you can't park a, a Duesenberg in front of it to, <laughs> or a, or a Volkswagen microbus, you know? Right. Yeah, I guess, uh. I guess I can forgive it. I don't know. You think that Duesenberg was from Jonathan Frakes's private collection? Does Frakes have a private collection of, of Duesenbergs? <laughs> I mean, if if there was one TNG cast member that, that owned Duesenbergs, I would guess it would be Frakes. It's his ep, though. <laughs> oh, I didn't know that. I didn't, I didn't uh, catch that as the credits rolled by. Starting to, to get used to him doing these in a way that makes me a little sad because this would be his last DS9 ep. No kidding. He would go on to be a, a great big Star Trek movie director after this. Wow. And and only Star Trek movies. Do you remember that period of time? I guess this was like late high school for me, probably. There were all these shows on like the sci-fi channel that were like, are there really aliens? Hmm? We will explore whether there are really aliens by talking to a bunch of cranks that have assembled incredibly flimsy evidence and convince themselves that there may in fact be aliens and he was like hosting one of those shows for a while i mean this is a jonathan frakes love cast probably first and foremost yeah the guy hasn't made 100 out of 100 great career decisions i mean (laughs) i think he would even he would say that sure yeah, like he did, didn't he host the magic show? Like the, the show that gave away what the magic tricks were? Oh, oh no, that was he? the X-Files guy, wasn't it? Oh, Duchovny? No, uh, the the bald guy, the guy who played Skinner. Oh, yeah, I mean, it was a weird time for television. Television wasn't really sure what television could or should be, you know? Like that pre, like, cable is eating network ca- television's lunch money, but also isn't even really that good. Like, peak TV had not started yet. Yeah. Kind of era. Arliss was the best show on HBO. (laughs) Still is. Still best show they ever made. God. Just reading through Jonathan Frakes' IMDb. (laughs) The guy fucking works, man. That must be the thing. Like, because he was doing those appearances on the... Like, hosting those shows at the same time as he was directing television and it must be an easy day right like you go in for a day or two of just like stand-ups in front of a camera on a green screen and they put the like crazy lightning and clouds behind you digitally later and you just have to like throw to 25 clips and that's one episode of a show Mm -hmm. and then you like rinse and repeat all day and then you've got your entire season 
and you get paid like 10 grand and you walk away. We've got Alien Autopsy Factor Fiction. <laughs> we have Roswell, Cover-Ups and Close Encounters. <laughs> we have Ghosts Caught on Tape Factor Fiction. <laughs> and also the World Magic Awards, oh, uh, man. of which he was a host. Guy gets around. I, um, at one point when I was shooting video for a tech website, went on a ghost hunt <laughs> because there's a lot of like, there's a lot of weird uses of technology when, when people go ghost hunting, like tuning radios to a dead station and seeing if you can hear any like voices coming through and stuff like that. And, uh, I, like we spent all night in this like barn in upstate New York shooting stuff and, uh, and I'd hired a, a freelance sound guy to come with us. And I was just there the whole night, like, bored out of my mind directing this video that was basically just shooting a bunch of, like, night vision cameras in the dark. And uh, we wrapped up and started driving home. And I was like, well, that was a bunch of bullshit. I guess I'll do my best to cut that into anything. And uh, the sound guy was like, oh, Jesus fucking Christ, I'm so glad we're out of there. And I found out that he had been, like, terrified the entire time because he had, like, personal ghost experiences and stuff. Wow. Yeah. I didn't, I've, I don't really believe in ghosts, but he, like, really does and had, like, signed on to this and just never told me or anybody else that it was a concern of his that there might be ghost activity that could be potentially harmful to him. But he was, like, shitting himself for six hours in the corner of this room. Wow. Yeah. It's really intense. It felt terrible. <laughs> well, we found out when we got back to New York, you know, like uh, I didn't I didn't receive an invoice from him and I inquired like, hey, send an invoice so we can get you paid. And his girlfriend got back to me and she said, uh, that sound guy has been dead for 10 years. <laughs> Which means the sound guy that you shot with <laughs> must have been his... G-g-g-g-ghost? <laughs> yeah, and then me and my dog ran for a while with our f- our legs just spinning in the air before we actually took off. Boy, speaking to people with interesting credits, <laughs> you're definitely one of those people, Ben. Yeah. Uh, it's me and Frank Military. <laughs> Jonathan Frakes. Biddle has a plan. Would you like to know <laughs> what that is, Ben? Yeah, Biddle- let's let's hear it. Biddle would like to go to Tasmania. Yeah. He's got like those big hostage taking demands. He wants a helicopter. He wants. He's got big hostage energy. <laughs> he does. He's he's asking for all the things because I think that's what you need to do when you negotiate, right? He's kind of doing a diehard list of demands, though. He reminded me of the RoboCop guy, too. Sure, but like, like. They, these people know that the the real crime is the heist, you know. Yeah, he's just watched too many too many movies. Biddle's on edge also because he's pissed that his riot team is recruiting more members, and he doesn't have a say in who they are. It's Cisco right. that does. He's been quietly getting people to recruit non-ghost people that they can rely on to safeguard the building because of the aforementioned tension between. Uh, the hostage takers, the hostages, and everyone else who wants to kill them in the world. <laughs> I'm sorry for laughing. I'm just you. You. Uh, 
You Jackie had lured me an amazing 90s picture of Jonathan Frake standing outside of a fairly badly maintained airplane hangar. Yeah. Probably telling everybody about some UFOs that that they think may or may not exist. Michael Bay is looking at that airplane hangar, like jacking it to the the possibility of exploding it on film. Filling it with barrels of gasoline and blowing it up. Yeah, it's really ripe for the baying. Yeah. Well, because so Webb was a character that we met in the last episode, and he it was keen on getting people organized and actually forming organized protests, not not riots, but just uh, demonstrations about how bad the uh, sanctuary zones are. And so he's kind of been infiltrated into the group by Cisco, and then Cisco turns to him and says, "I want you to go out and find gimmies, people you know." People who can be trusted to guard the hostages. If we leave it to the ghost, there's no telling what could happen. As Biddle is going down his laundry list of demands, Cisco does a little bit of power behind the power on him. Which yeah. is like, look, man, like a helicopter is cool and everything, and maybe Tasmania is a place to go at this moment in time. But mm-hmm. like you could do good for everyone here by including as part of your demands, like dismantling the sanctuary cities, perhaps. Yeah. Or reinstating this Federal Employment Act. Like, if you do something like that, all of a sudden, this becomes more than a thing about you. Yeah, and also, Biddle, if your reason for wanting to move to Tasmania is Errol Flynn, that just doesn't line up. (laughs) We know that you would have been born in, like, 1995 at the earliest, given your age and and the year it is. What do you know about Errol Flynn? I really feel Biddle here uh, in, in, in one moment, specifically, because Cisco's like, everyone should have a job. And Biddle's like, I don't want to have a job. Like, yeah. having a job sucks. <laughs> and if the only jobs you've ever known are the kind of jobs that Biddle's probably had, like, I totally get that. Right. Like, that makes total sense. That is Biddle feeling himself there. Yeah. And also, the argument against it is like, they'll find us jobs. That doesn't really satisfy the thing he's saying, which is that he doesn't want to work anymore because the kinds of jobs you can get are not enjoyable or stimulating. Yeah. God, it's so hard to like, Cisco's got a tough job because he's trying to make the case for this, but all these people know is the shit version. So for Cisco to be like uh, a chicken in every pot and a, and a, in a job in every driveway or whatever. Just picturing a shitty chicken and a shitty pot and a shitty job in a shitty driveway. He's not painting a picture. And so he doesn't do anything to discourage Biddle's desire for, for greater things. I don't think. I agree. I think that politically Cisco kind of fails in these moments and it's a little bit of a failure in the script because I think that, you could write this scene in a way that would persuade you that Biddle started to kind of think along the lines that Cisco wants him to think on, but that doesn't really track from what we see. One decision they make that doesn't help is pitting Biddle versus Vin, which are like the two most hateable of a group of not very hateable people right? going up against each other. I think if you put the hateable people against good people a little more, it helps... Yeah. It helps the viewer hate. It's a uh, chaotic evil and lawful evil have a conflict, and it's like whoever wins, we lose. Right. Yeah. To be quite honest about it, I was in a pale. I'm in a pale. Mr. Bucket, I have to revert back 
They brought in a hostage negotiator to deal with him, Ben, and this is a Detective Preston. They start to like try and get their get their demands out there and and the initial idea is just, you know, basically go on Periscope or go on uh on YouTube Live or something and defend what they're doing in there. And they put they put Webb forward to do this because according <laughs> to Cisco, he's got the look. He's got a little something called it, baby. He's got the face. He's got the family. He gets going, you know, introducing himself, and suddenly all the computers just cut out. We don't want to hurt them. All we want is it. What happened? Because the, the cops have uh, snipped the the phone lines or whatever. So they, they wind up needing to give their demands in person to this detective lady. I get the sense from this scene that Preston's a lot like the social worker in that she isn't necessarily evil, but she is in the machine. Right. She's she's uh, she's a cog in, a, in an evil machine, and she may personally disagree with it, but also, you know, does her job. Right. Which which perpetuates the the social ill that we're talking about here. And so their demands are basically like change a law. And she's like, well, you know, I'm not a, I'm a detective. So <laughs> last I checked, that doesn't exactly give me the power to change a law. But in the interest of friendship, I'll do what I can. I'll talk to the governor, see what we can do. And, it, it, you know, she kind of makes it sound like she has the governor's ear, like there are, there's a reasonable chance that some of these things will be addressed. Like and and then the things are like put a law back into effect that arranges for people to have gainful employment and tear the walls down on these ghettos. Mr. Gorbachev, tear down this wall. We get a scene here where Bashir is able to practice medicine in front of people, and that's a pretty good look for him, because up until now, no one believed he was a doctor because he looked like a hobo. Yeah. <laughs> well, he looked like a clown before he looked like a hobo. <laughs> He just can't decide on a costume. <laughs> and it's a good um, thing, too, because Leah is hypoglycemic, and uh, and she gets a nice scene here to share. I mean, I guess it's a nice scene, but also it's another example of good people only doing the good up to the point where it starts to become uncomfortable before stopping. Yeah. That's what Lee does. She tells a sad story of a time when she helped out the mother of a young child by just not entering her shit into the system and right. then getting in trouble for it afterwards. And it's supposed to make Lee look righteous, but it doesn't in the way that that Oh, I don't I totally disagree. Really? I I don't think it's meant to make her look righteous. I meant I thought it was meant to make her look like she's for the first time kind of unpacking her own practiced naivete and and complicity like she's we talked a little bit in the last episode about how she you know is literally the last person you talk to before you go start your new life in the sanctuary zone and is completely oblivious to some of the truths of how bad it is in there where are we supposed to stay while we're here anywhere you like the buildings in the district are there for everyone to use and in this scene, she's saying, like, I uh, attempted a couple of times to, like, do my best to not make this a miserable experience for somebody who really didn't deserve misery, and it blew back at me, and I've been making people's lives miserable ever since, and I feel terrible about it. That's a 
healthier way to see it, I think. I think my problem is a thing that I just tend to do in general that I'm trying to work on, which is <laughs> if I haven't done everything, then I have failed. And if other people don't do everything they can, they have failed. And that's just not a healthy outlook or way of looking at the world or at people. And I think that was a moment where I saw Lee feel the grief of her decisions come home. And my initial reaction was like, there's one where it should have been the thing that you experienced was that that was a useful epiphany for her to have. And if she were to get out of the situation alive, maybe it would be instructive in more decisions that she makes down the road. Well, I think that like she is set up as the person that is most sympathetic to the potential plight of people yeah. in the sanctuary zone. Of, of the people we meet in this time and place, like another person that we meet is Chris Brenner of Brenner Information Systems. I'm Chris Brenner. Brenner Information Systems. You know, interface, operations, net access, channel 90. That Chris Brenner. Uh-huh. And how sympathetic uh, do you think he is? He's like medium, you know, he yeah. can be persuaded but has not really interrogated this as a thing personally. Yeah. And then Vin, the nasty guard/police guy played by Dick Miller is like is hard mode, you know. It's like easy easy normal and hard on a video game. And Lee is easy, like getting her to see the evil in this was known to be easy from the the first moment we met her. Um, if we can convince Brenner, we might be onto something. But if we can convince Vin, things might actually change in this society. So you want to see if we can? Yeah, when Cisco talks to Vin, it's like talking to a wall. He robotically sees the sanctuary city as like a place that he works without yeah. seeing the people as people there. Right. And I mean, God, if there's ever an episode where you really want a lawyer Picard on the scene, it's this one. <laughs> it's not that Cisco isn't good at this. He's just not lawyer Picard. Right. And Picard would have laid 20,000 rhetorical traps for Finn to step into and then... Like so many rakes. <laughs> <laughs> Speaking of Vin, uh, around this point, like it's uh, it's like a, a a night has gone by, and uh, it's the next morning, and a lot of people are still asleep. Cisco is up, but off uh, on the other side of a room, and Vin kind of sees that sees that people are not really paying attention, and attempts to make his move for the exit, and uh, Cisco catches him. Everybody kind of leaps into into action. And it looks like Biddle is going to kill Vin, but Cisco talks him off the ledge with perhaps one of the greatest v- verbal threats in uh, in Star Trek history. You get on my nerves, and I don't like your hat. Now put the gun down. <laughs> and this is like kind of the start of Cisco really pegging the needle in terms of being just like a fucking born again hard badass. He really does meet Biddle's aggression with a sort of like insane, frenetic uh, wildness about him. Yeah. Like, Cisco is unable to credibly act threatening, but what he can do is act crazy. 
Yeah. And I think he is very effective at doing that in these scenes inside the processing center. Like, he's scary without being dangerous, if that makes any any sense. Right. To the degree you could have one without the other. Yeah, and, and that's something that Vin specifically addresses. He's like, why are you acting so scary? And Cisco's like, I am trying to save you, man. Like, like you have no idea how much danger you're in. And you have no, like, you have no conception of what a bad thing you're taking part in. And uh, and I'm here to save your life just so you can have that epiphany. Doesn't seem like it sticks. No. We smash cut from this, like, among the most intense dialogues in the episode to O'Brien and Kira beaming into hippie bus 60s San Francisco, receiving some flowers from some flower children and then beaming away, but the flower children don't know that's unusual because they appear to be so high on whatever they're taking that uh, that they just uh, accept the fact that two people beamed away. I really wonder about this scene a lot because so much is implied and so little is shown. Like, <laughs> couldn't they have emerged from the microbus in a cloud of smoke? Would that have been <laughs> too fucked up for Star Trek to do? The idea is that they're stoned when they see Kira and O'Brien beam away. Right, like, or just do, like, the thing in that 70s show, like, shoot it on a wide-ass lens and, like, do a weird camera movement and have there be puffs of smoke without any actual reefer. (laughs) You know, it's one of those scenes where, as a kid, you're just like, ha-ha, hippies are so weird. Uh And then as an adult, you're like, hippies are so high is (laughs) is the implication. I feel like you look at Kalamini's face in this scene and he is making it seem as though O'Brien knows exactly what is happening here. <laughs> Kira is confused, but I think O'Brien's pretty down. O'Brien is uh, starting to confront what a bad transporter chief he is. <laughs> Did you think that, that the, the dude hippie looked a little bit like Bruce McCullough in a hippie costume? I did. Good, because I did too. <laughs> There is so much that's good in this episode with respect to its set dressing and like how they do a lot with a very little bit of set. Like mm-hmm. I think production-wise, they're really trying. There's a ton of extras. There's a lot going on here. I think the low point of this episode might be the Halloween store hippie costumes yeah. that these two are wearing. It's just a bit, you know? It's like, it's just there for jokes. All I do is bits, bits, bits. No matter what. It doesn't really drive the story. It is, it is like, I think from a structure standpoint, they're just like, boy, this these scenes are so intense. Let's give a little comic relief. And we'll do that in joking about high hippies. <laughs> yeah. What are you doing? Goes around this time, like the negotiations that they've been doing with this detective lady don't seem to be going well. Like the there doesn't seem to be a lot of receptivity at the federal level for changing the Jobs Act. Uh, so uh, all all they're being offered is is commuted sentences or reduced sentences or something on their criminality, and they're like, okay, nice talk. Anyways, back to hostage situation. But uh, this uh, corresponds with. 
Dax actually breaking into the sanctuary zone. She ninja turtles up out of a sewer. Excellent! Yeah! yeah. Still in her party getup, which I thought was interesting. She went through the sewers in high heels. There's an embrace when Dax and Bashir hug, you know, after after finding each other in the next scene. Yeah. That is, like, she comments on the idea that she made it in there through the sewer, but it really would have punctuated it well if if Bashir, like, <laughs> pulls away, like, like disgusted by how she smells. You look great, but you smell terrible. <laughs> yeah. The, Star mean, Trek never does smell, though. We talk about it all the time. Yeah, it's too bad. I mean, it's also a very fucked up scene just because, like, the ghosts bring her in, like, hey, look at this hot piece of meat. And... And then they're like, oh, darn, she's friends with those guys, which is weird, a weird amount of respect for the ghost to have for her and them. So after, after they've been, after they've more or less announced that they just want to have sex with her. Yeah. Biddle's really changed because like 16 hours earlier, he was through and throughing bell next to a burn barrel and now he's like it just sucks that all the cool girls are taken but like what she's been brought there for is so dark like it's impossible to overstate how dark the implication of what this is god biddle really contains multitudes it's just so fucked up like the, i know the, the fact that the episode like can contain those two ideas in its head at the same time and not be like oh Ew, weird. Not in the, not in the, not in the same episode. Not in the same act. Not in the same scene. But like second to second, it contains yeah. those two ideas. Right. Wow. It's very very far. <laughs> if you cast Biddle differently, do you think this is less veiled of a threat, and it's less cartoonish by him? I don't know. I mean, he's. He does look like a dangerous white, you know, yeah. like like 1994 central casting dangerous white guy, you know, like if he if we were casting this guy in 2018, you would cast somebody that looks like Post Malone, but in 1994 yeah. you cast Frank Military. A casting agent misunderstood the uh, the request for what this person looked like. Like, make him look tough, like he's seen war. You know, like he's a military guy. And the casting <laughs> the casting agent was like, I think I know. Just, I mean, you broke up a little bit on the phone, but I'll you, get. You mean a literal military guy? I'll, like, I'll get military. Yeah, I military. know his agent. <laughs> yeah. I can't get you guy military, but Frank military is actually a personal friend. <laughs> so dumb. <laughs> the rescue plan is discussed here. Like the the doctor and Cisco and Dax head back into a private office and they they discuss their situation. She, her uh, comm badge has been taken away from her, but it's emitting a distress signal, so... If they can all get near the comm badge, there's a chance that the Defiant can get them back. And uh, they're like, okay, well, well, we'll have to meet you on the outside. And then they just kind of like casually mention that they're puzzling through how to get back their internet connection because they want to uh, they want to put a bunch of videos up on YouTube about how shitty life here 
in the sanctuary zone is. And she's like, well, actually, uh, a handsome gentleman I know uh, happens to be in charge of uh, Brenner Information Systems. You heard of him? Chris Brenner? That Chris Brenner. (laughs) I couldn't help but notice you were having a problem with the information system. (laughs) And uh, you aren't quite getting Channel 9 on this setup? Yeah. (laughs) We can take care of that. Have we ever heard about the com badge distress signal thing up until now? This seems like a convenient technology to be using in this well, app. She says it's like emitting something on subspace, right? Yeah. The person who has Dax's com badge is Grady, who is the Clint Howard character that we saw staggering around uh, the streets earlier. And Grady is maybe the dimmest of the dims. And it's kind of an awkward portrayal because sympathy doesn't go a very long way behind these walls. Right. And even less so for for someone quite as dim as Grady himself. And it's weird the tone that the episode takes with him because, like, they sort of turn him into a slide whistle. I'm invisible! If you say so. After part one of this arc establishes that dim is a slur, it seems weird that there isn't much empathy in the script for this character. I wonder how much of that comes from Clint Howard, though, in wanting to play big and weird, which is like sort of his brand, right? Right. And he's like a a, a long-standing big and weird character actor that Star Trek pulls from sometimes. Uh, a weird A weird choice to have him in this part in this episode. I don't feel like Star Trek's treatment of Grady is like a, is emblematic of of a of a larger mistake. Right. Like I want to see Grady as an isolated incident of like weird tone. Sure. I don't know. I'm conflicted about this because like I I want to I am prone to making fun of Grady the way that Dax does, but also it's sad because Grady needs help. Yeah, I think that I think that that's exactly the tension in a, a moment like this in Star Trek. It, like, yeah. and it's happened so many times where we're like, "This is not really Star Trek living its stated values," and that's upsetting to see. But also, like, we have a stack of examples of this. So, like, which is it, Star Trek? Like, do you have the the values that you claim or not? Yeah, that's well put. Yeah, and this and this scene kind of doubles down on it too because Star Trek makes fun of past people every chance they can get, and yeah. and the Grady character is also a past person, so there's yeah. every reason for Dax to humiliate him. And uh, these past people are our future people, so we have no choice but to look up to them and admire every decision they make. <laughs> wow, we really we really have some dimness to look forward to, don't we? Hmm. <laughs> The two of us are the dimmest of the dim, Adam. <laughs> you know who's not dim at all? It's Chris Brenner of Brenner Information Systems. You know, interface, operations, net access, channel 90. You can't be dim if you're him. He's a brilliant man, and he's persuaded by Dax's request to violate federal law and, and turn the internet connection back on for the people in the DMV. And so we st- we like cut back, and it's um it l- it looks like people are just kind of like getting in line to stand in front of the periscope and uh, tell their story. Like the, the first guy we meet 
is uh, named Henry Garcia. He was uh, he's trying to become a brewery worker at a at a beer brewery in San Francisco. This all tracks because he's wearing a beautiful Pendleton vest, uh, which is the garment of the beer brewer. And uh, you know he he is out of work because they uh, did some automation stuff. And that's how he wound up in the sanctuary zone. And he's one of a million people standing in that room uh, <laughs> telling a story that we can all sympathize with. That's a long-ass line to use the real-world confessional booth. <laughs> ben, when we go to Cardassia, we see that giant video billboard of some fucked-up shit being told to the populace there. Yeah. I feel some, like... Some gull saying that war is peace and yeah. freedom is slavery and all that. I feel like we're missing the cross-cut here away from this person or or another person telling their story to someone who is actually experiencing that story for the first time. Like... Yeah. Someone making dinner. You need the Truman dinner. Show yeah. round the horn of, of the guy that works in, as like a guard and a in a garage and the Japanese chef and the two old ladies on the couch all watching it and and I feel really like you're having making it fun touch of me. their heart. No, I agree. I because here's why I didn't quite believe that these messages were getting out. Like and without any proof of it, I thought it was still like a trick. Like yeah. we see we see Chris Brenner of Brenner Information Systems <laughs> sort of capitulate to the idea of breaking the law and allowing the block to be removed of the computer but like i still don't totally trust chris brenner of brenner information systems i'm chris brenner and that his intentions are not only sexual i mean the only thing we conclude from the episode is that it wasn't only sexual he was also a good dude or this is the last scene we see of chris brenner of brenner information systems we never get to say goodbye to chris brenner he, you know he never what? gave us a black album Dax was a puddle on the fucking floor when her boyfriend disappeared on a disappearing planet to return 60 years from now. Who grieves for Chris Brenner of Brenner Information Systems? <laughs> Certainly not Dax. He was just a cheap conquest for her. <laughs> Cut to Chris Brenner of Brenner Information Systems like at a tattoo parlor. Like getting the Dax spots tattooed on his arm where his Maori armband once lived. <laughs> it's the only way I could remember her. <laughs> That's it, man. No more square jobs for Chris Brenner. I'm going to go and work I, in a record store. From now on, I'm Chris Brenner of Righteous Waves. Kira and O'Brien get back from 2048 and... Uh, they look real wiped out. Like, holy shit, 2048 was not good. <laughs> new, new, thank you, 2048. And, you can uh, tell how much Star Trek cares about these costumes because they were totally unwilling to disturb them in any way. Yeah. Like, they basically got back from an urban hellscape and, like, they, they look fine. What they describe is, yeah, they they had like a Rick and Morty adventure, yeah. <laughs> and what they look like is just exactly the same as when they went to 1942 or whatever. Where's the soot? Where are the shredded garments? <laughs> but this is actually a useful piece of information because mm -hmm. they can take every every time period off of the 10 time period list that isn't before 2048. 
which which brings it down to three, and they roll the dice. They literally roll the <laughs> dice. There's a one in three chance that they're going to go to the right time period because they have enough chronotons for one more attempt. My headcanon is that Kira has made peace with the idea that she's the captain of the D now. <laughs> and, the, and the commander of Deep Space Nine. Yeah. She's like, I mean, this isn't all bad. <laughs> well, I mean, if they aren't able to restore the timeline or whatever, like... She is the captain of a single ship without a federation. Yeah, uh, with Stakes a cloaking device and a pretty and a pretty advanced ship at that. Yeah, yeah. She could go marauding around the galaxy. Where's that show? CBS All Access. We really need a marauding around the galaxy genre show. Yeah, that's what I want. So here's the thing: just to catch you up on the whole like offer counter offer Preston and Governor thing. There was a moment where Webb and Cisco chat up Preston and they're like, hey, uh, here's our offer. We'd, we'd like you to, to, I mean, like ignore, please just ignore Biddle for a second and hear our legitimate <laughs> offers of, of what we would like. And Preston's like, look, the best we're going to be able to offer at this moment in time is like a, a sentence less than felonious and right. we promise not to kill you. And Webb is like, you're going to have to do better than that. Except what's happened at this moment in time is the counteroffer from the governor is SWAT team siege. Right. So this is very similar to what went down when I uh, attempted to buy a car the other day, you know. <laughs> like, they, they wrote a number on a piece of paper and slid it across the table at me, and I said, well, I just simply cannot pay that, so goodbye. And I walked out, and a bunch of guys rappelled out of a helicopter and stormed my car and killed me. So I'm dead now, Adam. <laughs> Boy, uh, be careful at those Hyundai dealers. Yeah, yeah. They thought it was a negotiation tactic. <laughs> I was just literally broke. <laughs> yeah, the uh, the laissez-faire attitude of a O'Brien just like closing his eyes and hitting a button on a pad to yeah. make his decision made me think of... Uh, Delete this if I have told the story on the show before, but I had a friend who worked in mortgages during like the the inflation of the housing crisis bubble. Uh-huh. Who Whoa. told stories of them setting interest rates in conference rooms by like filling up balloons, writing percentages on them and then throwing darts at them. What? Like it was that don't give a fuck. Damn. So like O'Brien's like, O'Brien's inflation of balloons and then just throwing <laughs> darts at a time period. Like yeah. seems like that. Like highest possible stakes, lowest possible regard for like taking the choice seriously. And so a lot starts to happen all at once, you know. The SWAT team breaks into the DMV, the like, there is some shooting. Like, one of the SWAT guys definitely gets shotgunned in the chest. Uh, Webb gets killed, right? Yeah. There's sort of a lot of people getting shot in the chest in this scene. It made it sound in the first part of this two-parter that the uh, the hostage crisis was resolved peacefully and then, like, good political change happened. <laughs> that is not what happens here. Biddle's the first to go down, and so does Webb. And then Cisco gets shot taking a bullet for Vin. Of all people, yeah. fucking Vin. But it's just a flesh wound. And 
and uh, and we and we've established that persuading Vin <laughs> is the hardest one, and uh, taking that bullet for him really uh, really kind of breaks the spell. And uh, toward the end of the episode, he like walks out with uh, with his buddy to take a look at the aftermath of the of the SWAT team breaking in, and they're looking around at the squalor of the sanctuary zone. How could we have let this happen? The question is, how do we stop it from happening again? Does it matter that this episode doesn't make a strong case for someone to make the change, like, fundamentally? We're given so many different people to get to know, whether it's, like, Lee the Processor or or Biddle or uh, Bernardo or Chris Brenner of Brenner Information Systems. But you never witness them turn the corner in their thinking. You you witness no one doing that. The, I the think Vin is the only get, one, right? The best that you get is Vin in this scene and he's like and it's it's a slide whistle though because like Cisco wraps it in a in a joke. They, uh, which but, I wouldn't have but, expected, right? Like normally yeah. in in subject matters like this, like you see someone make the change. Is I that agree, the point? But it, but it's yeah, it's like it's that change is a process, and that and that injustice is not quick to 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 right. Yeah, and uh, you can't just get shot in the chest and and have your worldview change. Right. If it was that easy, everyone would be doing it. Yeah, that'd be great. <laughs> <laughs> there would be a crime called worldview change by cop, where <laughs> people went and threatened cops so they could get shot in the chest. But yeah, all is well. They uh, agree to uh, swap IDs with some dead bodies so that Gabriel Bell and uh, whoever Bashir was meant to be can kind of fade back into... Uh, into society from Vin's standpoint and uh, the death of Gabriel Bell can be established in history as is important. You get back to the Defiant and uh, Bashir shows uh, Cisco uh, an iPad with the Wikipedia article about the Bell riots and it's got a photo of none other than Ben Cisco in there. Looking great. As yeah. if uh, during <laughs> during the hostage crisis, like he had time to like sit down for a portrait yeah yeah it's nice get a little pancake makeup on biddle's like all right now that we got the hostages the first thing we do is take <laughs> some headshots now Ew, this Bell. lady that we got that we got in is mostly like a wedding photographer <laughs> but uh she can roll with the bunches and work in a dynamic environment like this so we thought she would be perfect <laughs> Did you like this episode, Adam? I think I was on the fence until that last scene when Bashir and Cisco get to talking about their experience, and Bashir asks Cisco how they could let things get so bad, and Cisco says, "I wish I had an answer." Like he does have an answer; they just lived it. I'm frustrated by an episode like this taking taking two episodes to give us this world and i think we could probably agree like heavy-handedly proselytize about you know the many failures of humanity in 
taking care of its least fortunate. And yet when it really comes down to articulate that, like, and you have your series' main character asked a direct question, this is a moment for Ben Sisko to become Picard or Picard's philosophical equal. And that he demurs in answering the question, I think, is a real missed opportunity. I know we're going to get many more seasons of character building for Ben Sisko, and he, I have no doubt, is going to grow into the beloved uh, commander and then captain that that people know him to be right now. But I feel like for all the work they put in, it was like sound and fury signifying nothing. Like, like yeah. what was it all for? It just sort of staggered at the finish in a way that was unsatisfying. It was super fun like the world they built was was detailed and interesting the direction was good the pace was good like the the production value was totally there it was totally unique looking and feeling and i really love that about it but the story failed the process to me Hmm. and that's how i feel when you ask the question did i like the episode and i told you i wish i had an answer like yeah that sort of negates the entire episode we have had up until now, right? I guess so. I mean, it's it's very interesting for an episode that did kind of indulge in being as didactic as this, at this as this two-parter did occasionally, mm-hmm. to state the question that it asks again at the end. You know, and like I, I had a writing teacher in college who said, um, "Good writing." poses interesting and important questions and great writing poses interesting and important questions and also answers them. Mm. And, uh, and that can be a real challenge, you know, like when you sit down to write something like this, where you have a puzzle in your head, like how do we, like, how do we all just walk around continuing to fail the poor people that live among us? And, you know, it is, uh, there are people that take the stance that that is some moral failing on the part of the poor. They are wrong and they are assholes, (laughs) but that's like an easy fiction for a lot of people to live in. And, uh, and I mean, I think we all do all kinds of different things ranging from denial to rationalizing to complicity occasionally in perpetuating systems that keep people poor uh yeah like i think that we're mad at this episode because it shows us a thing that we live with and doesn't give us any answers or doesn't solve the problem for us and i don't know that there is a solution to the problem that can be stated in the answer to a simple question like that i don't know yeah you know it's it's very hard to know how to feel about it it's gut-wrenching to think of the horrors of poverty and yeah not to make a joke about it or anything but like the answer could have been like not enough people volunteered or something like that you know people were too complacent yeah i mean i think i wonder if there was ever an answer in this scene i wonder yeah because like lee the social worker character Seems to sort of have the answer built into her character, right? She operates within a system that she feels great misgivings with, 
but is also sort of forced to by economic realities. And like that moment of discomfort when she gets in trouble for doing something that is actually good and uh, in spite of it not being her job is that moment, right? Like the moment where you say to yourself, okay, like my job is bad then and either I continue to like operate within it and perpetuate this bad thing that I know is bad or I choose to like sublimate that and and just get by. Right. And that's a that's a hard thing, you know, cuz she's not in a position to change the system. Something that she does by herself can't change it, but you know, through collective action change can happen. Yeah, I mean, there's something in the middle that I think we're both advocating for. I mean, I what I hope is that these comments aren't confused with why didn't Star Trek fix homelessness? <laughs> That's not what I'm making the case or what you're making the case for at all. I think no, it's no. just so much more interesting when shows state an opinion. Right. And and I think that TNG was more willing to do that. Like, yeah. Yeah. The, you know, like the Mintakan episode, like had a, an opinion about the value of religion. Right. You know. Now you are asking me to sabotage that achievement, to send them back into the dark ages of superstition and ignorance and fear. No. Which I'm sure many of the viewers of that episode disagreed with, but it's still like fucking amazing in a lot of ways. Yeah. On that note, do you want to check in on our priority one messages, Adam? I sure do. A little palate cleanser. Yeah. Priority one message from Starfleet coming in on secured channel. Need a supplemental income. Supplemental income? Supplemental. Supplemental. Yeah, it's extra. But the interest alone could be enough to buy this ship. Adam, our first priority one message is from Stephanie Powell, and it is to Mom. And it goes like this. You are as smart as Data, as slick as Riker, and as badass as Ensign Rowe. I shared this pod with you thinking, I hope the sex slave jokes aren't too much. And here we are now going to Minneapolis Gen Con 2018. Can't wait to fly the red eye out of the polar region we call home. And with the only person who gets my references. Love you always. Oh, man. Boy, Stephanie brings up an interesting point. Is that uh, we'd probably have 60 million downloads if we didn't choose to make fun of Wesley Crusher as sex slave. (laughs) <laughs> for so many apps, right? I know. <laughs> that is I a mean, real sorting hat of a joke, isn't it? Yeah, like if 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 you see that as funny, then uh, then you may see the rest of this as funny. Yeah. Uh, Useful. We'll continue it if we want to. Yeah. It's our fucking, fucking show. Joke. Yeah. Uh, unfortunately, this this P one will air just after our. Minneapolis show, but I'm sure we will have had a great time uh, in Minneapolis. I wonder which polar region Stephanie and Mom are coming from. Boy, I don't know. It's going to feel like the polar region in Minneapolis, I'll tell you that much. You see the weather? Oh, I didn't. Uh, I haven't checked it yet, but... Uh, Pack if, two uh, coats. Pack I two mean, tuxes, Ben. I'm, sh- I'm sure it will uh, Yeah, feel like, feel like home to anyone from either polar region. <laughs> Ben, our second priority one message is from Charlotte from Canada. It is for Ben, Adam, and Andrea. Message goes like this. Guys, this pod is the best. It's so entertaining and comforting. 
Aww. Thank you to Andrea B. and Kitchener for telling me about it. I have travel anxiety and I listen to the pod on the road and feel safe and happy. Hey. Can you do an impression of Kevin giving a motivational speech that will inspire <laughs> viewers like me to deal with our anxieties and build confidence? <laughs> well, Charlotte, we know that one, at least one of the hosts suffers from his own anxiety issues. Well, they are not traveling, Sadie. He has expressed to me deeply how much of a challenge those can be. And fortunately, I eradicated them and all anxieties everywhere. <laughs> you know, Charlotte, I, uh, I'm not really much of a public speaker. When I need motivation, I, I turn to the books of Tony Robbins. <laughs> <laughs> I may have the experience of creating and destroying life, but have you ever just really looked at that guy? <laughs> I mean, what an amazing set of chappers on that man. <laughs> and Do you boy, think that's orthodontia? Like, <laughs> unbelievable. The only <laughs> thing more manicured I've ever seen is my house in that one-by-one-kilometer s- stretch of Malibu that I recreated on that planet. You ever see that, that documentary on Tony Robbins? He has a... One foot by one foot ice swimming pool that he jumps into? What a weirdo. I mean, he seems like he's really helped a lot of people, but also kind of an asshole at the end of the day. I I sincerely doubt that this has been helpful in any way, but I, I most definitely hope you get to where you're going with a minimum of stress and anxiety. The sincere tip on anxiety is that these are your feelings, and your feelings are real. You should not feel ashamed or preoccupied with them. You are the sky, your feelings are the weather, (laughs) and you are safe. I don't know how I feel about motivational speaker Kevin Uxbridge. (laughs) Is he redeemable? I don't know. I mean... We don't have any law to fit his crime, and we certainly don't have any uh, medical board to certify him. He like don't take his advice seriously. Well, we do have our uh, our spots for priority one messages, Ben. Yeah, those are available at maximumfun.org/jumbotron. A personal message is a hundred bucks, and a commercial message is two hundred. And uh, they support this program and they get your message out to thousands and thousands of friends of DeSoto. One of the amazing things about making The Greatest Generation is getting to see all of the cool, creative stuff that the Friends of DeSoto make when we do a Code 47 episode. People send in handcrafted stuff all the time. And they send in their books, they send in paintings, they send in uh, crochet work. It's so cool. And uh, I want a few more of you to have websites to direct us to in those letters. I want you to put your beautiful work on display for the world so that when we get to look at it, we can tell people where to go to get a look at it themselves. And you don't have to know anything about building a website to build a website these days because you can use Squarespace. It'll look beautiful no matter what kind of device people are looking at it on. Hell, you can even sell stuff using a Squarespace website. Don't make your cool creative project captain's eyes only. 
Head to squarespace.com scarves for a free trial. And when you're ready to launch, use offer code SCARVES to save 10% off your first purchase of a website or domain. A good time so often has a downside, doesn't it? Especially when it comes to stuff that you put in your birdie. We've all been hungover before. I mean, many of us have, I guess. Or we've had too much jazz in our gummy. And that sucks, right? Because you don't think about the time after the good time that you've been trying to have a good time. That's why I like Lumi Labs so much. It's the predictability. Through painstaking trial and error, I have found my perfect dose. It's what I can depend on when I can use a little more chill, a little help getting into a creative headspace, and I don't need to have too much fun doing whatever it is I need to be doing. And I'm so glad that Microdose is available nationwide. That means just about anyone can try it. To learn more about microdosing THC, go to microdose.com and use the code SCARVES to get free shipping and 30% off your first order. Again, that's microdose.com and the code is SCARVES. Back for another game. You know it. What's going on? Just one more week till Max Fun Drive. <laughs> Hard to believe. It's been a heck of a year since the last one. We're now a worker-owned co-op. We raised $50,000 for charity last year. And we've added a bunch of awesome new shows. But do you think we're ready to do it again? Absolutely. Lovely new gifts are lined up. The episodes will be amazing. And wait till everyone hears the bonus content. Yeah, plus they know to go to MaximumFun.org newsletter, so they're getting all the news. Oh, like that meetup day is on Thursday, March 21st. Then what's bothering you? Me? Oh, nothing. We're all set for Max Fun Drive to start on Monday, March 18th. I just didn't want you to see this coming. Check. What? Hang on! Most of the plants humans eat are technically grass. Most of the asphalt we drive on is almost a liquid. The formula of WD-40 is San Diego's greatest secret. Zippers were invented by a Swedish immigrant love story. On the podcast Secretly Incredibly Fascinating, we explore this type of amazing stuff. Stuff about ordinary topics like cabbage and batteries and socks. Topics you'd never expect to be the title of the podcast. Secretly Incredibly Fascinating. Find us by searching for the word secretly in your podcast app. And at MaximumFun.org. Hey, Adam. What's up, Ben? Did you find yourself a drunk Shimoda? Drunk Shimoda! Yeah, my drunk Shimoda is Chris Brenner from Brenner Information Systems. <laughs> I'm Chris Brenner. Brenner Information Systems. You know, interface, operations, net access, channel 90. That Chris Brenner. <laughs> he gets so little to do in this app. He's basically asked a question about his abilities, W slash R slash T, unlocking a computer station. Yeah, he seems like he may be kind of elite hacksaw, but that's only implied. He makes a pretty strong counter argument for losing everything he has and being imprisoned for, <laughs> for doing this favor for Dax. And yet he comes around to it and does it. You never see him struggle with... The existential conflict that it really brings about in him. Like, this uh -huh. changes everything for him. Yeah, he's going to stop being Bill Gates. I mean, that, to me, is as unexpected as anything else in the episode. Like, 
you talk about chaos agents, like I would have expected any answer from Chris Brenner of Brenner Information Systems. Right. I and initially I expected him to say no, and rightfully. He He's never, got a lot to lose. He never seems like the type that would put it all on the line because we don't know him well enough. We don't know right. anyone well enough in this episode, and that's one of its many problems. But I think for Shimoda reasons, Chris Brenner takes the cake for me. What about you, Ben? I got a big laugh from Cisco in this episode. This is right before the throw to theme. We actually get some pretty intense Cisco eyes to theme mm-hmm. in this episode. Because he and Bashir finally, at long last, get to the project of leaning the benches against the windows so that snipers don't kill everybody. And uh, they're talking about the fact that that Gabriel Bell, historically speaking, dies at the end of this. And, and Bashir is basically like, aren't you worried about that fact? And Cisco's like, I'm not at all, because I'm not really Gabriel Bell. And Bashir just looks at him like... That's not the point of the question. Like, somebody's going to have to die, and everybody's going to have to think that's Gabriel Bell. And it's very clear in Avery Brooks's performance that he wanted this to be the first time that Cisco had contemplated that part of the issue. <laughs> and uh, I, really, I really thought it was funny. I thought it was intentionally very funny. I really... You re- you really bring up a great point here, and I wish there were there just isn't t- enough time. Like I wish there was more scenes between Bashir and Cisco where Bashir's like, "Do you kind of want to martyr yourself here? Because you seem really excited about that." Because <laughs> like the concern that Bashir displays for his boss and friend is like it doesn't go that far. He's concerned about mission success and about finding Dax, but like there is that third element that kind of goes uninterrogated, which is like, what do you want to happen here? And I think that's an okay question for Bashir to ask him. Indeed. What's the third part of this three-part episode, Ben? <laughs> the next episode is season three, episode 13, Life Support. And of course, this series is available on more than one streaming platform. And uh, I'll tell you that one of the streaming platforms that we commonly use describes this episode the following way. When a serious accident nearly destroys a Bajoran transport arriving at the space station, Vedic Barail is critically injured. And uh, the other streaming platform in question describes it this way. Bashir must use questionable methods in order to keep Vedic Burial alive long enough to help bring about a Bajoran peace treaty with Cardassia. Hmm. So like an episode with stakes. I kind of don't see how that fits in with the uh, Gabriel Bell storyline, but I'll give yeah. it a try. <laughs> we'll have to see, yeah. Discussed this, like, I think we have more than one listener that actually works at Netflix. <laughs> And uh, and also people with friends that work in Netflix, and I've I've seen some some action online that would lead me to believe that Netflix has been made aware of the weakness of the episode descriptions wow. that they're putting forth. So I, I will be very interested to see if that changes at some point. <laughs> That's fun. Well, uh, shall we decide via fate? Uh, and the game of buttholes, the will of the prophet, uh, on what 
what state we will be in when we do the next episode? I think we should decide via Condios. <laughs> well, sorry, uh, we only have this uh, this game board here at gach.biz slash game, so uh, unfortunately that's what we're going to have to use, Adam. And uh, I'm going to go ahead and roll it. It uh, looks like we've got a Naked Now still in play as a potential thing we could hit. And uh, the rest of the squares are regular-ass squares. You're required to learn as you play. Roll. We're on square 25, and I'm going to hit the, uh, the virtual roll button here. Did I win? Hardly. We rolled a six, so we have jumped way over the naked now. We are on square 31 now, Adam. All right. Boy, that was close to being pretty awkward. Especially because the next episode we record would probably happen while we're on tour together, so. (laughs) That is. Might be the same bathtub. Yeah. Pretty gross. Yeah. That's a a soup that no one wants. (laughs) Not even you on an airplane. Yeah, Rob has to sleep in that bathroom. <laughs> well, another great plane episode from you and me. Vanilla is a flavor, Ben. Yeah, looking forward to it. Adam, when people want to go on the internet and talk about the show, we encourage them to use the hashtag GreatestGen. It's uh, only very occasionally used by people talking about their grandparents and almost always people talking about this show and making jokes and posting fan art and stuff. Uh, Of course, uh, our card daddy Bill Tilly posts amazing trading cards for every episode, every week. One of my favorite parts of the show. Also, JJ Lendl on Twitter is posting a... uh, Really beautiful, like, old-style movie poster of each episode of Deep Space Nine every week on that hashtag. So a lot of uh, fun stuff to look at and fun people to talk to there. It's also Facebook, Reddit, and all kinds of other social media groups of all different varieties for folks to join if they're interested in joining. Uh, The show is made... Almost entirely possible by the contributions of our generous listeners. People who want to support the show can go to MaximumFun.org slash donate to do that. We got to thank Adam Ragusea, who made our theme music, a lot of our custom theme music, and uh, he was uh, greatly influenced by Dark Materia, who made the rest of our theme music and very graciously granted us permission to use it. Thanks, guys. Gotta thank everyone who's come out to see us on tour, uh, doing live shows. By the time this up comes out, there should still be a few more left this year. And uh, as Greatest Gen Con winds to a close, it's been so much fun to meet so many of you. Yeah, there's one last Greatest Gen Con show in 2019. I don't know if it will have been announced yet, but uh, we are really looking forward to wrapping up this tour. And uh, we are already hard at work thinking about what the next live stuff we're going to be doing is and uh, we're really excited about uh, what an enthusiastic reception we've gotten from the Friends of DeSoto this year so yeah. thank you to everybody that's come out yeah it's it's not possible to do uh, without people coming to see the shows that's for sure indeed with that we'll be back at you next time with another great episode of Star Trek Deep Space Nine and an episode of the greatest generation Deep Space Nine 
that brings back the weird surgical uniform. <laughs> Maximumfun.org. Comedy and culture. Artist owned. Listener supported.